Thanks for coming, everybody. Seriously, very great to have you all here. Lots of awesome San Francisco faces, people that I haven't seen in a while, people that I have missed and will miss as we move out of the Bay Area temporarily, permanently. We'll be back around. Um, and I'll definitely be back to Borderlands again, because it is my favorite bookstore. Back in the old, old days, before my first book came out, Borderlands was the only place that took some of us podcasting authors seriously. And when my first book came out, Jack Wakes Up, with a small publisher called Breakneck Books, that no bookstores would take seriously, or no one would take seriously. Borderlands was willing to have me here to read, and I'll never forget that. Got my Borderlands mug for having my first reading here, and this is a great, amazing store uh, that you guys should check out. Lots of books on the other side, cafe on this side, and Borderlands is a really interesting story of San Francisco economic change and sort of can-do, NIMBY, DIY, backyard power. When the, um, the laws changed recently to change the minimum wage story, Borderlands was gonna have a little trouble, and so Borderlands started taking on sponsors who each donated $200 a year to sponsor $100 a year, one donor donated $100, and Borderlands has been great ever since. So donors, uh, I would consider uh, donating if I was you. This is a great store to support. I'm a huge fan of it and support it every way that I can. It's okay to talk amongst yourself. If you're under the age of five, it's okay if you talk during the reading. I'm gonna read a couple of um, Short chapters uh, from Everyone Pays. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of chapters from Everyone Pays, uh, and then I'll be happy to answer questions. Like Jude was saying, I've got a lot of different books and old-time uh, special editions and rare publisher copies over there, things that you can never find anywhere else except for here. And if you're a huge fan of Scott Sigler, as is one person who's here, I'll give you some free stuff. So, um, Everyone Pays is a San Francisco story about uh, the city and not so much how it's changing, but how some of the things that have been going on here for a long time affect its residents. Uh, we have some main characters, two of them, a man, uh, whose name is Michael, who I'll be reading about first, and a woman who is Clara Donner, um, San Francisco homicide detective, who I'll be reading about second. This is Everyone Pays. And seriously, thanks for coming. I, I, it's nice to see you guys. We'll be getting burgers and shakes after across the street. I hope that you'll come along for that as well. All right, so uh, this is chapter four. Uh, Michael. What? What's wrong? I know. What do you want, though? Oh, you can get it now. Get the sippy. I'm going to have a sip of the... Um, Sometimes things have to take a pause for a 
three-year-old and what the three-year-old needs. You can just fill that with coffee. You don't want to do that. Chapter four. We get some more milk down front, please. A little bit, 2% if you have <laughs> Is that, do you need more? Okay, chapter four. She'll help you out. Jude did seriously pick out all the blue and yellow M&Ms. I totally thought that was random and that she wouldn't do it, but she did it. And I came and there was this huge thing of M&Ms up on the front, all blue and yellow, which I then felt like I had to eat all of, because I didn't feel like I could eat, I could take the M&Ms after the reading. So I was like, kind of reading, kind of eating M&Ms. And I got ended up with a much stronger coffee than I was hoping to get. And I was like wired on caffeine and like eating M&Ms. This is a terrible reading. <laughs> Not that this one's gonna be bad. We're off to, Great. I'm going to read at some point, actually. <laughs> it's good that you guys could come for that. I've got a book here. Okay, so. It's good. The first name I had, Jay Piper, lived in the marina. It was these type of guys, the ones who had cash and a need for what Emily provided, who lived there. They were who I'd find as I tracked back through her past. I headed to his place on my night walk cruised through North Beach asking for him, but he hadn't been around. I saw fewer girls out this time of year, maybe the January cold, maybe someone had cleaned up the streets, but not likely. Used to be, the area near the strip clubs offered crowds and protection, the right kind of men, guys who liked women and girls. Every part of the city had something, whatever you wanted. You only had to know where to look. I broke into his building, knocked on his apartment door. The light in the hallway, the speed of the dust in the air said he wasn't home, hadn't been in a while. I could wait it out in the hall, hanging in the shadows until he came home, but that wouldn't be much fun. Instead, I broke his lock and let myself in. The first sight was a dark hall, its smell money and leather. There was another sensation, one that disgusted me. Partway down the hall, I found a locked door, broke the handle and opened it. Inside, a small office had been converted into a padded cell. Studded handcuffs fastened into walls. Extra sets on the floor with shorter chains, whips and crops. Clamps, a few, a few small knives. This was the first I must clean from his earth, absolve before him to make Emily whole again. This was more than I wanted to see, worse than I could have expected. Whether a hunch or my interpretation of Emily's breath when she slept, my study of her scars, I could not have guessed at these acts, this depth. That her past featured this kind of pain, that's what I was there to absolve. At the end of the hall, his bedroom, normal looking, the kind of place he could bring any girl. In the dresser, I found a stack of Polaroids, all of girls. They sickened me. I wanted to hurt him, make him bleed. Emily's picture was there among them. I had to sit, waited, and counted to 40 to catch my breath, then 50, then 70. At 100, I opened my eyes and could see without red. I stood, put the photos on a shelf in the front hall so he could see them first when he got home. I wanted him to know exactly why I was there. 
why he was getting what I had to give. Back in his bedroom, I waited by the closet, the dresser beside me to support my weight. He came home after sunup, Jay Piper. If he were clear-headed, he might have noticed his pictures of the girls in the front hallway or seen me by the dresser near the bed. But he wasn't, didn't. Light of day and I was standing right there, him too drunk or too stupid to notice. He threw his jacket on the chair, took his shirt off, and walked back out to the hall. I heard him go to the bathroom for a long time, groaning, the bathroom door open. His jacket smelled of cigarettes. I waited, counting my breaths. He came back and flopped onto the bed, yanked a pillow over his face to block out the sun. I stepped softly, even if he was too oblivious to hear, and leaned down with both hands and all my weight on the pillow. I bore down harder, holding his head in place until the kicking slowed. When I took the pillow off and rolled him over, he showed no signs of recognition, no respect for who I was. Of course, he missed the presence of God. I dragged him into the other room, his dungeon, where I bound him against the wall with his short-chained cuffs. I started to work his ribs. I had my shoes off and bag gloves on. I started in with light jabs and straight rights, warming up, doing him like a heavy bag. When I brought left and right hooks, I heard breaking, a few ribs. He came to before I finished a round, but by the end of the second three minutes was out again. I haven't even started on his face yet. I took a break, hung my shirt. Am I, am I, is this too graphic or am I doing it? I hung my shirt on a hook in his bathroom, wiped my face on a clean towel. At least he was good about laundry, his place far from a mess. This was the kind of man to have a woman come in once a week to clean, paid her cash under the table, didn't think twice about the world she lived in, didn't care. I did. I saw a woman like her in church every day. When she came to clean, he would always keep the door to his dungeon closed and locked. She would have no idea what was inside. I threw his old coffee down the sink and filled the filter with the best stuff I could find, some Guatemalan single origin that probably cost $30 a pound. While I brewed, I took stock of his knives, deciding which ones I liked most. I'm trying to add it a little bit as I go to keep things on the up and up, so to speak. Uh, and so I'm feeling a real need to read the basketball part of this piece, which is very pro-basketball and sports and features a strong female character playing basketball in Potrero. I have to take a picture of such a lovely crowd. Well, the sun is kind of in your in back of you. If you could turn to the right a little bit, that would be, oh, yeah, good. Thanks. This is a good job. I don't know if I got you. All right. Uh, so this is the, the other main character, Clara Donner, who's a San Francisco homicide detective, a real badass chick. That night I had to blow off steam, so I went to the Potrero Rec Center, a gym near my condo in Potrero Hill that had open court four nights a week. Basketball for the guys, mostly, but on plenty of occasions I brought the discomfort of having a girl in the mix. Ever since junior high, basketball had been my release valve. 
my way away from whatever troubled me. Now I played to get away from the visions of bodies, the thoughts of pain, memories of my Achilles tear that had come up at Piper's. I shot by myself on a corner basket while a three-on-three -three went on at the other end. Hooking in layups from both sides, my own mic and drill, not only built up a good sweat, oh, more kids, perfect. <laughs> Just in time for the clean stuff. My own mic and drill, raise your hand if you know who George Mikan is. Raise your hand if you can imitate what a mic and drill looks like. Okay, uh, not only built up a good sweat, but also helped with everything going on in my head. Holy smokes, this guy. Almost everything, that is. Even shooting around can't take away some things, like what, it is, like what it's like being single at my age, watching all of your friends first get married and then start having kids. Now I was old enough that they were starting rounds of divorces. Definitely not something I minded missing, especially with kids in tow. As the daughter of a single parent father, I knew all about what it was like growing up in a broken home. Not that my dad hadn't done everything he could, anything possible to give me a leg up in the world. But like I was relearning in my own life, the days, nights, and long hours of homicide investigator didn't leave room for much else. On a break from shooting, I watched the guys play three-on-three -three on the other court. They were into their second game, all of them sweating and holding their knees at any opportunity. They were tired and out of shape, which was true for most of the guys my age or older who still played. that's particularly disparaging of the New York Knicks. Uh, <laughs> having a bit of a hard time finding it. Oh. Given that the closest basketball team was the Golden State Warriors, I was used to this brand of disappointment. But maybe there was hope this year. Curry and Thompson, the Splash Brothers, were making me a believer. I knew Andre Iguodala would be big for them down the road. On the flip side, my hometown Knicks were way worse, even worse, ruined by Carmelo Anthony and his shot-chucking ball hoggery. They were on a straight trip to the bottom. <laughs> I watched the guys play three-on-three on, three on the other court. They were into their second game, all of them sweating and holding their knees at any opportunity. Usually I waited until they were winded before I asked into the game. Tonight, none of the regulars who knew me were around, though, so I had to give the guy thing its wide berth. Some didn't like to play with a girl, a woman, sergeant, investigator, hot chick, whatever they called me in life or out on the street. Even if they called me for a date, here on the court, I was always a girl. And that suited me fine. They were guys, I was a girl. And if I could come in and show a few of them I could play, even drop a few outside jumpers on their heads, and get them to play real defense. I was winning a personal battle on my own. 
I dribbled in zigzags with my left hand, still watching their game, waiting for my chance. One guy was good, an Asian kid in his late 20s with, with a nice looking body and a full head of hair. He faked, then drove by his man after a quick crossover and laid it in. His teammates gave him high fives, but the one guarding him was pissed. I had to laugh. It really was a nice move. I started flipping the ball out to myself with backspin, gathering it, then popping jumpers from the elbows. Shoot, rebound, dribble to the other side, flip it out, catch, turn, and shoot, all in rhythm. It felt good, the back and forth, images from Pipers and thoughts of my Achilles tear nearly forgotten. Hey, you wanna play? I turned toward their game. One of the older players had pulled up lame, something with his hamstring or quad it looked like. Everyone else stood around, hands on hips. At this late hour, we were the only ones here. With no one else to ask, they all looked at me. What do you say? The young Asian guy asked. This close up, I could see he was actually cute. I'll play. I bounced my ball into the bleachers and jogged over to their end, trying not to look like a happy puppy whose owner had just picked up the leash. A bald guy, in good shape and with a handlebar mustache, passed me the ball on a bounce. He was shirtless, clearly confident in his frame. Take a few shots, get used to the weight, he said. I dribbled a little, then passed it right back to him. I'm good. Ooh, his friends teased. Nobody wanted to be shown up by a girl, which was the main reason it was hard for me to play with them. Anyone guarding me was in a lose-lose situation. If I did well, they looked bad. But if they were actually trying, then they looked bad too. Maybe I liked making guys look bad. Maybe I liked it a lot. This guy was okay though. He smiled instead of getting upset. My bad, he said. This girl knows her balls. What can I say? Thank you. And The others laughed. I had to smile. Call it an extension of the Hall of Justice, the locker room, or whatever. I just managed to gravitate to these situations. <laughs> Are those horns or ears? Horns. Instead of explaining that I always shot with a guy's ball, I said, who's my team? The cute guy pointed to himself and a white guy my age wearing a swoosh t-shirt and SB dunks. I was already unimpressed. <laughs> but I knew I had one good player to work with. Turns out the game was already half over. 13 to 11 with my guys up and the game to 16. For some reason I had never liked playing to even numbers. No idea what it is, but back home we always played to 15 or 11. And that felt better. Never 16. Sometimes 21, though that was a different game altogether. What's your name? I held out my hand. Clara. We shook. Too formal. Alan, he said. Or Clara is cool, too. On the court, little details like how to say my name didn't matter. I offered the option so people could choose what they thought was easiest. Honestly, I'd have been fine with just C. S.B. Dunks was named Edgar. The oldest, shortest, slowest guy from the other team stepped up to guard me. He was late 40s, I guessed. Bearded, Caucasian male, 155 pounds. This would be fun. Alan checked it up and passed off to me. I dribbled my guy around the circle, watching Alan to see what he would do. 
When he caught my eye and went back door, I scorched a pass off the bounce, exactly where he wanted it. He laid it right up and in off the glass. 14 to 11. Nice. Edgar slapped my hand and then when Alan ran by, patted his butt. I didn't need to be one of the guys like that. I could get posted up, guys would get a little touchy, but mostly I stayed away from hands on my ass. I checked it and passed to Alan on the wing. He faked a drive, jab-stepped, then faked a shot. His man bit and Alan took two dribbles toward the middle, just enough to pull my man in and then passed it to me on the opposite wing for a wide open jumper. I took the shot, hit it, all net, and everyone stopped playing. It was only then that I realized they were playing ones and twos and that I'd lined up just outside the three-point line from force of habit. I'd ended the game without even knowing it or wanting to. Good shot, Alan said. We touched hands. Then the old guy with the hamstring problem jogged back onto the court and mustache passed him the ball. Run it back, someone said. And just like that, I was on the outside again, heading over to my own hoop to shoot around by myself. I glanced over my shoulder and Alan winked. That was a nice pass, he said. Maybe I'll see you next time? Yeah, I said, cool. I went over to retrieve my own ball and shot around for a few more minutes before I got bored. I decided to head home. Once I got the rush of a game, shooting around didn't cut it anymore. Thank you very much. Very exciting to read out loud from a book. <laughs> these things are hard to write. I know a lot of you guys are my students here and I always say these nice things like, keep going, you're gonna do it, it's all worthwhile. Writing, go. It's damn hard, it's hard. But then there's lots of books that get done. So people do it and I've done a few. Um, so any questions? She's three. Yeah. Anne Marie. Sorry, Monty, next. Anne Marie. Um, I am just wondering about you mentioned uh, somewhere in the book that you contacted detectives mm. to ask them how yeah. they work. So did you know some detectives or did you call the police department cold and so ask that I talk to some? I mean, how, how did you hook up with some people who were willing to talk about their work? Are you interested in trying that? Well, for what I'm writing, I need to start interviewing people because it's a historical novel, so I'm going to have to do a lot of research. It's weird. The police department, I mean, as you know, if you live in or near San Francisco, their police department is ridiculously understaffed. Um, so they have like a public relations office that has a website and like tells you where to call them and stuff like that. And I tried that route and got absolutely nowhere with it. They referred me to some lieutenant who like never returned my call or something. Uh, but I have a friend who is friends with a woman who is a cop here in San Francisco, a patrol cop. And I sort of started contacting her on email and then we had a lot of exchanges and uh, I just started talking to her that way. So through a friend of a friend and trying the official way didn't work at all. Um, but I also had a friend who was uh, working at the Hayward Police Department and he set me up there with a ride-along. Um, and then through doing that, I made some good friends on the Hayward Police Department team. Um, 
So if you ever have the chance to do a ride along, I'd really encourage it. It's fun, crazy, a little more fun and crazy than you would want it to be as a civilian. But um, it's just a weird, I did a night one and these guys were like, on the first night of three 14 hour night shifts, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, one of those, and they were like, monster Red Bull, eating dinner at like two in the morning. It was nuts, but fun, kind of cool. Yeah, do you have a question? What's your question? Yep, that's a light. Monty, we'll come back to you. Yeah, did you uh, study any particular uh, sports fighters in order to help uh, prepare for that uh, scene of the basketball game? No. I mean, I've been reading sports stuff forever. I, I read a lot of Sports Illustrated in high school. Growing up, I was a huge fan of Bob Ryan at the Boston Globe. Um, and he's written some books that are super worth reading, particularly if you're a Celtics fan. Also, there's a great book by Bob Ryan called A Night in the Life of the NBA, which is like a whole book about one particular basketball game. But I've been reading basketball writers pretty much forever. Um, I've even read Dick Vitale's biography. Uh, but you know, where I got a lot of the stuff for that section was um, talking to a woman who was my research assistant, who I originally brought on to help me with the religious stuff in this book. And she wound up having been a pretty good, awesome Division II basketball player. And so she told me a lot about what it was like for her. And one of the funny things was that um, when, the, um, when one of the editors was reading this book, the developmental editor was reading it. She had played high school and college basketball. And she was like very excited that these parts really fit her experience of playing the game. Mostly listening to people. Connie. So, you've written several male protagonists, and now you've written two female protagonists. How does it differ for you to formulate those characters? The next book will be featuring a cis male main character. Really? Yeah. What the heck is that? Cis male. This is a new designation of gender that we have in central Massachusetts. I have no idea what it is. But the new thing coming is cis males and cis females. Google it. It will probably have an explanation. I don't know. Anyway, OK, back to your question. Uh, how is it different? Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's so different. I, I, you know, there's a lot of just sort of writing the books that involves kind of getting into the head of your character. I talk about this a lot in my classes. It's almost like an acting exercise where you sort of have to think your way into how that character would act and what that character would do. Um, you know, the Jack Palms guy is, is really nothing like me. He's a Hollywood action movie star. Um, and I sort of had to think my way into that role. And so then, you know, the young Junius one was the hardest for me to think of because he's a 14-year-old uh, African-American kid from the rough side of the tracks in Cambridge. Uh, and they all sort of feel the same to sort of work your way into that character, but that one felt like a bigger risk. Um, writing a woman 
you're not as likely to get negative backlash, except from a few reviewers on Amazon who I won't name, but I've uh, started stalking them online and my missiles will be hitting their houses soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I have a lot of close friends that are women. I have a sister. My lovely wife, Kelly, is here. And, you know, when you listen to other people and sort of where their worlds are and stuff, and then work your way into that character, it sort of comes around on its own that way. But it's very nice to hear people, women say, other than those three Amazon reviewers, the women uh, often say, like, you know, you did a really good job of getting that character. And so that feels good. Anne. So, I'm always um, really impressed by authors who can balance uh, enough description and can kind of suck you into this world, but not so much description where it bogs you down, bogs the storyline down. Yeah. How do you find that sweet spot of really creating the, like, the full environment and an immersive experience for the reader without, like, going overboard. We talk about that in my classes a lot. There's, um, there's this great essay by one of my teachers, Frank Conroy, that I'm happy to email you if you want. Uh, but he talks about how the writer and the reader are both have to be able to put energy into the reading experience. Like the books that we really like, we're picturing them in our head, almost like a movie in our mind. And so you sort of, you know, by being conscious of that and not just trying to like convey the writer's energy all the way to the reader, but sort of to let the writer, let the reader in and build some energy to make some of those pictures their own, as opposed to trying to make them all mine. Uh, he talks about sort of like this arc where the, the writer energy and the reader energy have to meet in something called the zone. And when you get there, uh, that's the real focus, is making it visual so that you get the story and what's happening in it, but you can also picture it. And so you're in the world, but you know, I guess the answer to your question is like being aware and trying to enable that place where the reader can put in their own energy and just sort of being aware of that and trying to make that happen. And then once you, once you notice that, then in class, it's a lot of like sort of penduluming back and forth to try and get closer to like enough description but not too much, and then too much, not enough. And after a while, you sort of find your balance point, and then it sort of feels like uh, riding a bike. You sort of stay on it. But yeah, we work on that a lot with a lot of my students and in the classes, and it's great to see them sort of get to the point where they can do that. But I, you know, what I'm seeing a lot is trying to get them out of just describing what's going on in characters' heads. So much like thought, 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 italicized thought, 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 flashback, thought, memory. Um, and like to just to make these scenes that are visual where things are happening, characters are doing things, playing basketball, skinning a chicken, any number of things. Um, and using dialogue. Yeah, good question. Thanks. Those are good questions. I like the ones that. Good. Uh, Kent. Yeah, I just want to. You, you talked about um, uh, teaching writing. Yeah. You know, I'm just curious about how, uh, if teaching writing, you know, over time has changed the way you, you write and think about the process of writing, and if it has, how has it? Well, one of the things about teaching writing that's great is that it keeps sort of like bolstering my hopes 
and giving me um, encouragement. Like I see these students come in and they're like, I really want to write. And they're like chipping away at these things that are really nascent and not really going anywhere, but they're working on them and working and working. And so it makes me feel like, well, you know, if these people are working so hard on something that's so far from seeing the light of day in terms of publishing, or they have this enthusiasm, then it becomes contagious. And so it kind of keeps me feeling like, yeah, there's a reason that I should keep writing. I, I go back to that enthusiasm that I felt when I was a young man starting out, thinking like, yeah, this writing is awesome. Which of course it is still, but um, yeah. So there's that, and then it gets me to think consciously about this sort of zone stuff and, and making things in scene. Um, but I think I've been really stuck on that in my own writing for a long time. So I think really like what affects my own writing is reading more. And a little bit of the downside of teaching is that it keeps me reading some of the stuff that's not always so good. Um, so that as a negative, but then the positive is all this enthusiasm and excitement and meeting some great students. So there's that. It's a mix, like everything. Yeah. Keith. You've talked about teaching. I know that you've taught live classes. You've taught classes um, over the net. Yeah, the internet. Can you tell me the difference for you between the two ways and also the difference in feedback you're getting from the students between a live class and a, and a class in the ether? The feedback is pretty much the same. There's always like one or two nutballs with some crazy stuff when in the evals. And then most of the people are pretty reasonable. Um, Although, the interesting thing with, so I'm teaching these. I like the interesting thing, yes. The interesting thing about these online classes that I'm teaching now is that sometimes you get these people in crazy far off places. So the first time I was teaching this online class where everyone had to come to the session and be there for the certain time, there was a woman in Sweden. She was up at like 2 AM, no big deal. There was this guy in Malta who was getting up at like 5 a.m. for the class. So that was really cool, just because I know nothing about Malta and wanted to learn about it, because I was writing my other project, The Maltese Jordans, which you guys, this book is going to be big. When The Maltese Jordans comes out, watch out. It's going to be big. And then there's the on-campus aspect, which is like you sort of can read what's going on with people. Like you know, like maybe this joke should go on a little bit longer, or maybe this joke should stop, or I could push it a little bit, and this guy in the front row might laugh. But there's a thing where it's online, like you like can't entirely like fully gauge what's going on with people because sometimes they might just start eating something, or like yeah, it's just a little bit weird. But I can do it from my basement in my pajamas and from central Massachusetts, so there's that. Lots of good about that. And I don't, but I, and I like going down to Stanford, there's a beautiful campus, but now I don't have to do that anymore. So there's, you know, it's like that. Does that answer your question at all? More than 20%. Good. <laughs> to recap, minivan, jungle, generator. But, yeah. Awesome. Do you want to come back up? Do you want to sing a song? Okay. So uh, you can really sort of get a, a connection with people more easily in person, and so those really weird connections happen less in person. 
I don't even know whose question I'm answering at this point. <laughs> Maybe we have time for one more awesome question. Oh, yeah. Willa. A light. It's funny because my first word as a young person was light. I'm told. What was Willa's first word? Mama. Mama, obviously. And then? Light. Light. <laughs> what were your first words? Kelly. Um, are you asking what my first word was? Yes. No. I don't know. Was it no? Uh-oh. Mama. 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 Some of your characters in your books tend to be on the darker side, in particular, this book had some darker moments yeah. to like having to get a balance to kind of extricate yourself from that world and enjoy when, I, when it first got published and I got to hear the audiobook of it, I was listening to the chapters that involved this bad guy like taking apart this dude, Jay Piper. And it was really hard stuff. I was like, ooh, that's dark. And so I had to fast forward it in the car on the audio. But yeah, I don't know where this comes from. I think, but honestly, I think part of it comes from walking around San Francisco and just seeing the shiz bombs that's out there. Um, I was, I was going down to the Tenderloin a bit when I was writing this book, and so I was sort of seeing what was going on and visiting a church down there and just trying to get a sense about what goes on on the streets down there, but also living in this neighborhood and walking back and forth to Treat Street and 18th from Shotwell. Uh, oh, big guy in the house. Um, you don't know him, but that's good. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like, the book that I'm working on now has a fair amount of stuff in it about the homeless population in San Francisco. And I started thinking about this probably two years ago and writing it a year ago. And this was stuff that I would see walking around the mission and seeing the homeless people in tents and stuff. Um, and sort of a little bit peeking inside those tents and seeing what's going on in there and sort of noticing this. And it's like, it's bad, but, you know, writing this stuff from Massachusetts for the past eight months or something, and coming back here and being in the mission again this summer and walking past the same streets, it's gotten so much worse, and it's so dark. So, like, all the stuff about homeless people that I've been writing is dark stuff that comes from just seeing stuff in this area. Um, but now being back here... It's so much darker here, the stuff that I'm seeing with the homeless people and what's going on with them, and it's like beyond drugs and beyond just like a tent here and a tent there. It's really in-your-face kind of stuff. So um, some of the darkness comes from just walking around San Francisco and seeing stuff. But then you turn on TV and it's like, the stuff that seems really dark in my books is not half as bad as an episode of Bones or something like that. And 50 bazillion people watch Bones like every Tuesday night with their cup of coffee and ice cream. So who knows? Bones. Thank you guys all for coming. It's been really nice to see you.
I'll be happy to sign all your books. <laughs> Thank you. Oh wait. Thank you so much, Seth. So, um, very briefly, there are a lot more of you than I anticipated, which is awesome. Why would you anticipate anything else? <laughs> um, no, this is great. But um, I'm going to shift Seth over next door to sign in the bookstore, just where we've got a little bit more room. So there's a table set up for you over there. Oh, wow. And uh, so if you have things to be signed, Seth will be happy to sign them for you. If you do not have things to be signed, we can totally help you with that, with a little bit of assistance from Seth. There are a whole bunch of 